Hi, I'm Wanda Bryant-Hope, Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer at Johnson & Johnson. At Johnson & Johnson, diversity is about everyone's unique perspective, and inclusion is about creating a deep sense of belonging. Our vision is for every person to use their experiences and backgrounds together to spark solutions that create a better, healthier world. Learn more by visiting youbelong.jnj.com. I had been in ground combat. I had been the living embodiment, like so many women before me, of the exact opposite of what a lot of the arguments against women in combat were. I mean, I even had people saying things like, you're going to pee your pants as soon as the bullets start flying. And I was like, well, when I was shot, I was able to maintain bladder control and, you know, everything's (laughs) very strange. From Politico, this is Women Rule, where we bring you real talk with women bosses. I'm Anna Palmer, senior Washington correspondent and co-author of the Politico Playbook. That's MJ Hager. She's a former military pilot who served three tours in Afghanistan and is now back home in Texas, running for U.S. Senate. Last year, she ran for Congress, a race inspired by her inability to get a meeting with her member of Congress while she sought to change rules that blocked women from ground combat roles in the military. A member of his staff suggested to me that if I was frustrated that I couldn't get on his calendar, that I should consider being a donor. And that is not written in our Constitution. (laughs) (laughs) We talked about what she wished she knew when she ran for office the first time, why she's had such success raising money for her campaigns, and what makes her think she'll be the first Democrat in decades to win a statewide race in Texas. When people look at me, they see a fighter, somebody who takes on the establishment, who isn't intimidated and is willing to kick through doors. In the northern half of my district, my congressional district, there would be Ted Cruz signs in the same yard as a sign that has MJ Hagar. And I would be like, stop the car. (laughs) I know what's going on. And I would knock on the door and they would say, we don't care what your policy positions are. We just want a fighter. We know you guys will disagree and you'll fight against each other sometimes, but you'll be fighting for us. And now, here's my conversation with MJ Hager. Let's let's talk about the campaign. You ran for the House last year, came up short. Now you're running for Senate against John Cornyn, who's a hard opponent. I would love for you to talk a little bit about why you think you could win this race. Yeah, you know, I think part of it is that I don't really think of it as coming up short. Um, you know, for years I was competing to become a pilot and follow my dream of becoming Han Solo from Star Wars. <laughs> and, you know, every time I competed for a pilot slot and I guess came up short, it made me a stronger competitor next year. And of course, I eventually achieved my goal of becoming a combat pilot, did three tours in Afghanistan. And I'm just, the district that I ran in was gerrymandered to be much redder than the rest of the state. So it was really like a giant focus group for running a statewide campaign. And if you adjust for the gerrymandering, we would have won that race if it was, you know, a mini Texas. And so, We also were able to, you know, do a lot in the way of harnessing that grassroots energy that's happening in Texas right now. There's so much more activism and excitement and door knocking and meetings and people having conversations about solutions to different challenges that weren't happening. I mean, I've lived in that district since I was seven years old. I outperformed any statewide candidate in the rural half of my district in 30 years, you know, and we can be successful in rural areas. We have so many Democrats that focus on the cities. Not only is that not what I think is like moral because you're representing the whole state, but it's also not strategic because we can't win races just by focusing on the cities. So I learned that I really because I grew up in rural Texas, I can really connect to rural Texas and talk about how we share values. 
Talk about that, because I think that's one of the interesting things. Texas is a red state. I've been covering politics for a very long time. The red to blue in Texas, I've heard it happening, you know, time and time again. But what you're talking a lot about is kind of getting voters to vote for the person versus the party. That's the key. So a third of the state self-identifies as independent. And that is not because they're moderate and stuck between the two parties and just have a foot in each and can't decide. They see themselves as outside of the party system because they don't feel like Republicans or Democrats have been serving them and delivering for them and looking out for their best interests. There's a lot of people that I meet on the road that are like, I don't care what party you're in because they've accepted the fact that there are so many different policy nuances that the candidate they end up supporting, they probably won't agree with 100 percent on policy because good luck finding someone who agrees 100 percent with your policies. Most people are more focused on working two or three jobs just to get food on the table, just to get their kids to soccer practice. And they they don't want to pay attention to every single vote you you take in office. They want to send you there. With the ability to trust your character, they want to send someone to office that they know they don't have to monitor every single vote. They just know that person's going to go there and fight for them. Well, I think one of the things about you that seems to really appeal to voters is this idea of authenticity, is this kind of concept that even though you're running for office, you're comfortable in your own skin. Mm-hmm. So many women that we talk to on this podcast talk about the struggle of that, right? Of being told you need to look a certain way, you need to act a certain way. And you kind of, in your first race, which is, I think, pretty stunning, went away from that, right? You did your introduction to a lot of people came from this viral online video. And I remember seeing it the first time, which gave your backstory. And for listeners who maybe haven't seen it, can you describe that ad? Yeah, it was called Doors. And I think that it, to be honest with you, it broke my heart a little bit that it went viral and resonated so much because the whole thing was about people in D.C. closing doors in my face because I wasn't a large dollar donor. I, I didn't have a lot of political capital. I, I wasn't there to play their game. I was there to fight for my community and fight for something to make our country stronger. And it, it, it kind of jaded me a little bit what I experienced there. And it resonated with so many people who feel like their voices are not being heard by their elected officials. And, you know, I think that a big part of the problem that we have in politics right now, we have a lot of problems in politics. But one of the things is the personality that that this job normally draws is the exact opposite of the type of servant leader we need in office. We need to stop electing people whose lifelong dream it is to be a senator, because when you when you put somebody up there who is doing this as a fulfillment of their life's ambition, the the probability that they will do anything to get reelected is higher. We need to start electing people who can do without public office. They'll put themselves up, you know, and and if you see something in their character that you identify with and you share values with, vote for them. And if not, then don't, you know. Um, And I think that there really is a a yearning for authenticity and connecting to people. Um, A lot of the things that I listed as objections to I shouldn't run for office, like I'm super transparent, I'm very forthcoming, I can't pander, I'm not going to sugarcoat anything. People were like, yes, we're hungry for that. We're tired of the used car salesman. So you may not agree with everything I say, but you know that I'm open to having a conversation and a dialogue with you. One of the things I ask women on this podcast a lot is about the line between the personal and the public. Yeah. How did you prepare for becoming a public figure? Because it's not, you know, I think like people have in their mind, you know, either the West Wing or Veep or, you know, these kind of different things. And that's not, I mean, it's people like reporters like me and other people who are looking into your background and your everything, every single thing you say all of a sudden is a soundbite. I mean, how did you have anything that you did to kind of like mentally get you you ready for it? I was kind of already vetted because I was the lead plaintiff in such a controversial lawsuit that was intended to try to 
you know, make our military stronger and advocate for people, but you're taking on the establishment and taking on the establishment in DC and bureaucrats and elected officials that have been there a long time can be very intimidating. I was getting death threats and definitely had my background vetted. That was way before I ever considered running for office. And it was one of the reasons I feel like sometimes when I'm trying to recruit candidates to run for things, that's one of the barriers. And I had already been through that kind of turmoil and vetting. So it wasn't a barrier for me. I will say, though, a lot of times it's, I don't know, tempting to bring pictures of the kids. I mean, I, t- I have just the two of the cutest little boys you've ever seen in your life. Mm-hmm. But I refuse to put pictures of them out, even though it would probably help my race, because I don't want people recognizing them. Because frankly, I made that mistake in the congressional, although was it a mistake? I was breastfeeding a five month old in my congressional, right. so he was going to be in the pictures. Yeah. Right. But people recognize them. And then and, and we were we were trick or treating during Halloween and we had my opponent's supporters and I know they were my opponent's supporters because they were driving a giant 10-foot banner behind them, <laughs> started pelting my kids with candy. And, you know, I have to protect them. And I'm running to protect them. So now the only pictures you can find of my kids are when they were that age. And they look totally different now, and that's great. So I do think that there's a line that you have to draw between the personal and the professional if you want to protect that. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. That's got to be scary. I mean, an intimidation tactic, clearly. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, what people underestimate about a woman like me is that when you try to intimidate us, you get the opposite effect. It just makes us more determined, more steadfast. And I think that you it's a common thread among women like me who have prevailed in kind of male-dominated career fields that we've already had to kind of kick down the patriarchy. And, you know, that's not something that we shy away from doing. Well, let's take a step back and talk about some of the things in your background as a young girl you wanted, as you said earlier, to become a military pilot. Mm-hmm. That's not necessarily the uh, job description that I think if you he went and you know canvassed the the, the small school age children yeah. of Austin, Texas, that they would say that that's number one on their list. Yeah, I think it's a credit to my parents. You know, my father served. Uh, when I say my father, I mean the man that I consider my father, the my stepfather who raised me. He served, and when as a young child, I don't think that it's uncommon for young children to say they want to be pilots, they want to be Han Solo. Maybe that's a generational thing. Maybe they're using a different <laughs> character now. My parents didn't say no, you can't do that because that's a boy's job. And actually, my whole youth, as I was growing up, saying I wanted to do this, they weren't allowing women to fly in right. combat, and nobody in my family ever said that to me. To their credit. In fact, I remember seeing on the news when they were announcing that cockpit combat cockpits were open to women. I was like, I remember very vividly walking by my couch, seeing it on the news, turning and shrugging and going, oh, well, that's good. I didn't know that we couldn't do that, but I'm glad we can now because that's what I want to do. And it was really lucky that that's what I wanted to do because it, it made me lead this kind of straight and narrow because I was a little bit of a rebel. And it, it made me keep my nose clean and have a very boring kind of childhood, which now that I'm under all this scrutiny and vetting, nobody can find anything, you know, because I knew I had disguise to, and yeah, the, the, the desire I had to go to the military. I keep my nose clean if I wanted to be a combat pilot. And it, I was mixing a very like an adrenaline addiction with an overdose of patriotism and like How do you square those two things for your career? And being a combat pilot was a perfect fit. You said uh, in other interviews that the feedback you received was that, quote, the front is no place for a woman. Who told you that? Uh, That was more, I think, policy. The fact that our policy was such that we had to fight so hard to get combat cockpits open. And then once that happened, we still had this policy that had 238,000 jobs still closed to women because if a job's primary mission was ground combat, a woman couldn't compete for it, which was ridiculous because we had women in ground combat in other roles. 
And it was tying the hands of the commanders in the field because they would need women in certain roles, either because they were women or because they happened to be the best at their job. For example, we have Marine female engagement teams that were, you know, kicking indoors with our our Delta Force guys, you know, and we needed women in those jobs because partly because we would have female civilians that needed to get pat down to make sure they weren't carrying like suicide vests and Culturally, male soldiers can't do that. They needed women in those jobs. So the field commanders were having to run through loopholes and like attach women to these units instead of assigning them. And then the women would get redeployed back to the states and not go through the same redeployment like integration with PTSD. And we would have women have issues with the VA not being, you know, treated like they were, they were combat veterans and parking in combat veteran parking spots and coming back to their cars to nasty notes and You know, it was just not good for the military, not good for the commanders in the field. The Joint Chiefs unanimously signed a letter to the Secretary of Defense asking him to repeal the policy. It was definitely not like me versus the Pentagon. It was really me versus the D.C. bureaucrats and the people who were trying to push an antiquated view of gender stereotypes on our military. You yourself served in Afghanistan, came under fire from the Taliban. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that mission. Um, so, I mean, you know, it was my third tour in Afghanistan. I had a lot of combat time under my belt already, had been shot at a lot, but, you know, had never been physically shot. <laughs> so, you know, we took a lot of fire. I was shot through the co-pilot's windshield, but it was really largely superficial mm-hmm. damage, right? So I took a bullet through the windshield, but it fragmented into several pieces. And so it looked bad. There was a lot of blood, but not a lot of like actual real damage. I was totally functional was able to continue the mission. We medevaced three patients out, but we took so much damage that we weren't able to fly back. So we ended up kind of crash landing about 1.8 miles away, having to hold our perimeter for 20 minutes, waiting for exfiltration. The dramatic nature of the exfiltration is part of the reason I became kind of a public figure. I got pushed into this kind of dog and pony mm-hmm. show because we had this very dramatic exfiltration where we were holding on to the outside of a two-seater helicopter and getting pulled out and The bottom line was that I had been in ground combat. I had been the living embodiment, like so many women before me, of the exact opposite of what a lot of the arguments against women in combat were. I mean, I even had people saying things like, you're going to pee your pants as soon as the bullets start flying. And I was like, well, when I was shot, um, I was able to maintain bladder control and, you know, everything's (laughs) very strange. And it's hard to say those objections to the face of someone who's defied those objections. And And frankly, it was just it's hurting the culture in the military. It was just hurting so many things. Um, It was important that we repeal that policy. And when the secretary of defense repealed it very shortly after we filed our lawsuit, it was when, you know, Jeff Sessions came on the TV and said he was going to legislate it back in place that I really learned how to work D.C. and learned that I was really good at building a broad coalition. So what you're talking about is basically after this, a couple of years later, you're part of this public push to overturn the combat exclusion policy. Right. Which was that women could not officially be in combat. And you just kind of laid out all the reasons why that. Was it keeping us out of combat? It was just keeping us from competing for military elite positions that led to leadership roles. Right. Right. And that really was your first kind of foray into politics, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Because I, like most Texans, you know, wasn't very politically active. And something that happened during that effort that I thought was pretty stunning that spurred your run for Congress, uh, you couldn't get a meeting with your member. Yes. Tell us about that. Yeah. um, A member of his staff suggested to me that if I was frustrated that I couldn't get on his calendar, that I should consider being a donor. 
And that is not written in our constitution. <laughs> that is not the way it's supposed to work. Um, and as someone who took an oath to the constitution, not to a party, not to a president, not to a congressman, not to an idea, but to the constitution, to support and defend that constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. I was very clear on what it meant to fight against a foreign enemy, but that domestic threat eluded me when I was young. And as I've grown older and learned more about how DC actually works right now and the priorities of some of the people who are in office, most of the people who are in office, I realized that there is a great domestic threat to our constitution. When I see the free press under attack, when I see hyper-partisan judges getting confirmed, I mean, I remember not too long ago a time when judges were up for confirmation from either party that had to convince the people confirming them that they could be unbiased. And I'm not seeing that right now. And that concerns me as a constitutionalist. So, I mean, I see a lot of threats to our constitution and I feel like the only thing I can be doing right now to protect my kids is run for office. We'll be right back with more after this quick break. The Johnson & Johnson You Belong Diversity and Inclusion Impact Review explores how we are transforming our approach to diversity and inclusion to better understand the needs, desires, and values of the diverse communities we serve. Our impact review shares stories that demonstrate how our 135,000 employees are building and accelerating a culture of inclusion at Johnson & Johnson, to better serve our patients, consumers, employees, and the world we care for. Our commitment to DNI runs deep. That's why we're consistently recognized as a top company for diversity and inclusion year after year. But don't take my word for it. See for yourself. Visit youbelong.jnj.com. If you win in 2020, you'd be the first Democrat elected statewide in Texas in decades. Why do you think Democrats have had such a hard time? You know, I don't know. I feel like there's been so many candidates that have come from the political echo chamber that they forget how to talk to people. You know, our political system is set up such that it's really hard for regular people to run for office. I have taken on D.C. bureaucrats again to Mm -hmm. try to make it easier for working parents to be able to afford childcare while they're running for office, because again, that's something that independently wealthy attorneys and career politicians don't have to worry about. So you actually, as if I recall this right, and you, you can check me if I'm wrong, but you basically fi- asked the FEC, which is the commission that you know all of the electoral laws and rules and regulations about how much people can c- contribute and how you have to spend money and what's legal and what's not, and you were able to convince them that childcare should be able to be paid for. Yeah, I mean, there were people who came before me who were also carrying that banner, so it's not all me. And and they made great strides, too. I extended that to working moms, not just moms who had never used, you know, daycare before, mm-hmm. but are using daycare now to run for office. But moms that have been working like myself and have used daycare in the past just not to run for office. So it's kind of, there's like... Maybe there's some nuances. Yes, I, I, maybe there's I was, some nuances. I just don't want to take full sure. credit for the whole thing, but... But my personality type is such that when I see an injustice or something that makes it harder for my community, I don't just take to social media. I don't rail against injustice. I don't hit my head against a brick wall. I actually really take a look at how can I move the needle here? And I'm really effective at actually being able to to make a change that makes it easier. I want to talk about one of the big things that we talk about on this podcast a lot, whether it's women in politics, in business, entrepreneurs, it's access to capital, it's fundraising. It is one of the things that women, it's one of the biggest reasons why women don't choose to run because they don't want to have to ask people for money. 
What's your experience been like? Do you have any advice for women who are considering running and that's a big hurdle for them? I mean, what my advice when I'm trying to mentor candidates that have a hard time with fundraising, because really, frankly, there's a lot of us who are passionate about the issues, who want to be able to talk about them, you know, and, and, and move the needle on our values, but are maybe unwilling or unable to kind of, you know, run the business side mm-hmm. of it. I often say, like, you can have the best lemonade in the world. But if you just put up a lemonade stand outside your house, you can't get mad that you're not competing with Minute Maid. Like, you have to actually do the work, too. When I'm talking to people who are struggling with that, I say, you know, you're not asking people for money for yourself. You're asking them to do what you're doing, to put their time and treasure and energy and effort toward getting affordable quality health care for everybody and, you know, empowering our position on the world stage as a global superpower and, and trying not to let that erode before our eyes and, you know, things like that. Just remember the values that you're fighting for. So there's been some chatter in the last couple months, people encouraging Beto O'Rourke uh, to drop his presidential campaign and come back and run for Senate. As someone who's been here running, was that frustrating to hear this idea that he could just come back and oh, have not it handed to him? No, it's not frustrating at all because, you know, we're in the kind of foundation laying, you know, phase of the campaign. I don't expect to have the kind of name ID that somebody like Beto has um, at this stage. I do expect that we are going to be very successful as the campaign ramps up, right? When I hear that somebody's trying to convince him to run for Senate, I don't hear that they don't think my candidacy isn't viable. I just haven't had a chance to to talk to them yet. Um, what I hear is excitement and enthusiasm for unseating John Cornyn. What I hear is a focus on Texas. What I hear is an acknowledgement of the absolutely groundbreaking and record-breaking grassroots enthusiasm in Texas for change. And so that excites me. So many people would say, I think, that Ted Cruz is uh, part of the reason why Beta was almost successful there was because he's so hated in the state. I'm so glad you're bringing this up. Um, compared yeah. to John Cornyn, who has been here for a long time, I, I, I think probably take has taken care of his home state issues more uh, than Senator Cruz's. How do you see that? I think that that is, no offense, kind yeah. of a Democratic party position. And that's 30% of our state is self-identified as Democrats. 40% of our state self-identifies as Republican. 30% of the state self-identifies as independent. And it is a common misperception that Ted Cruz is wildly unpopular in the state. This is kind of what I'm talking about when I'm saying we need to field candidates that are not in the kind of echo chamber, Mm -hmm. because it's important to acknowledge that, that Ted Cruz cut his teeth politically in Texas on disrupting the Republican establishment and Texans love a fighter. It's the same thing that has made me successful is that when people look at me, they see a fighter, somebody who takes on the establishment, who isn't intimidated and is willing to kick through doors, right? In the northern half of my district, my congressional district, there would be Ted Cruz signs in the same yard as a sign that has MJ Hagar. And I would be like, stop the car. (laughs) I find out what's going on. And I would knock on the door and they would say, we don't care. We don't care what your policy positions are. We just want a fighter. We know you guys will disagree and you'll fight against each other sometimes, but you'll be fighting for us. People forget that he beat Donald Trump in the Republican primary for president by 17 points. This is more of a Ted Cruz state than it is a Donald Trump state. They forget that Ted Cruz has a 50 percent approval rating and John Cornyn's is somewhere around 37. You know, I mean, John Cornyn is not wildly popular. I was I was just talking to 
one of my future colleagues in the U.S. Senate who said that they had never seen John Cornyn lead on anything, that he's always just in kind of coast mode and self-preservation and just not leading and taking any risks. And that's not something that people would, would normally say about Ted Cruz, although I disagree with what Ted Cruz thinks is right for the state. Mm-hmm. But Texans and independent voters like to vote for somebody who is going to buck the status quo and isn't going to do as he's told. So right now, the big policy uh, debate, I don't know, maybe policy is the wrong way of saying it, but the the big debate that's happening is on impeachment for Democrats. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And where Cornyn has been on that has been, I think, a little bit of interesting, kind of more of a watch and see mode. Um, A lot of senators have kind of taken that road. Where do you stand on Oh, man, I wish he was in watch and see mode. He is full on in support of the president without seeing any evidence and any results of investigation. (laughs) And that concerns me regardless of what your party is. It concerns me when I see people putting party over our country, either side of the aisle. I think that we should not be making decisions on whether or not to investigate what are very clearly concerning allegations and actions and statements Anybody who is serving the Constitution and not their party leadership would want that investigated. So that troubles me. But I mean, I would say equally troubling is anybody who's going to reflex to um, we absolutely need to impeach. Let's, let's, you know, not just the investigation, but actually voting him out of office based because they don't like his policies. I don't like his policies, but I would like to see him lose an election because of his policies aren't working for working families in Texas. I want to see somebody impeached from either side of the aisle who commits impeachable offenses, which I believe after an investigation, we will find that that's the case here. But until we get there, I just I just think I see people from both sides of the aisle putting their party over the Constitution and over their country. And that that concerns me. And John Cornyn is certainly putting his party over Texas and over the Constitution. So you support the investigation. Absolutely. And anybody who is hearing allegations of you know, withholding military aid to an ally who's fighting against Russia, who happens to be a hostile foreign power attacking our elections. Yeah. As a military member, I find that very offensive. And I don't care what party you're from. If you're going to do that, I want that investigated. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Women Rule is produced by Zach Stanton. Dave Shaw is the executive producer of Politico Audio. Special thanks to Alex Phillips and the Texas Public Policy Foundation for helping us out with recording space in Austin. The show is made in partnership with our founding partners, Google and the Tory Burch Foundation. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave a review. And please share our episodes on social media and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at apalmerdc. You can also join the Women Rule community by texting WOMEN to 66866. This year, Johnson & Johnson was inducted into the Diversity, Inc. Top Companies Hall of Fame. We were also ranked number one on the 2019 Working Mothers Best Companies list and have been recognized for 34 years in a row. That's what you might expect from a company whose workforce was more than 50% female when it was founded more than 130 years ago. Learn more at youbelong.jnj.com.